No, it's a good lunch and, and good to be back together again. A um, couple of things that I want to kind of um, bring around and, and, and summarize. And let me, let me first give you a point of cultural backdrop that I want to be sure to note um, just about this whole situation that Paul is dealing with, the, the Corinthians and the Macedonians and and the world at that time. Let me give you just a, uh, a thought on that that's important that I actually didn't bring out before. And then I want to say a word about the application of the principles we were seeing in this first movement. Uh, and this comes out a little bit from the conversation that we were having around the table. But first, the cultural piece. So let me say uh, a word about the cultural piece. Um, in Greco-Roman world, giving and the flow of money was normally seen as being something the wealthy did. And often what they did in the broader Greco-Roman world, talking about just the Greco-Roman culture, not the, necessarily the religious world, but they gave money often to people who were of the same social status or a little bit less uh, in order to kind of benefit those who are in their general class or a little bit lower than them to have those people obligated to them. So broader Greco-Roman world, many of these Corinthians that Paul is addressing, they would have grown up in a context where their framework only understood wealth being distributed, given by the wealthy. So in other words, middle class people, lower class people did not give of their resources, all right? So that was, that's, that's a shift. They're being challenged, first of all, to kind of come in more in line with the Jewish world because in Judaism of the day, basically caring for the needs of other people and caring for the poor especially was something that everybody was expected to do regardless of their social status. So in Jude Judaism proper, you had... Um, this idea that um, everybody gave what they could to the poor, to those who were poorer than them. So things like the sharing of wealth, uh, showing hospitality, because in the, in the broader Mediterranean world, they didn't have hotels, for instance. Um, if you had a place where people were staying in an inn or a tavern or something, kind of, something like that, that was the place of prostitutes and thieves, and so when you're traveling through the Mediterranean world at that time, um, piety meant that someone lets you into their home to stay as, a, as an act of hospitality. So you had um, these different forms of piety, but one form of piety was that you gave to those who were less well-off than you. The thing that is striking about how Paul describes the Macedonians is they not only went counter to their normal impulse of their culture, which was that the wealthy are the givers. They, they went beyond even a Jewish approach that would say everybody should give to the poor to say, Paul is saying what they did is the gospel manifested in a way that they went even beyond what would normally be expected of a pious person in Judaism of giving according to their resources. They gave beyond their resources. And I think, the, I think the impulse is uh, that it's a gospel impulse for the mission of the kingdom and along relational lines. It's not just kind of giving to poor out there in the world for, for any reason. 
It's something that is, is missionally driven, and it's relationally and network kind of driven. And so what I, I hope you're seeing in these principles here already is that uh, at the heart of it are, are these relational dynamics. Paul is saying that uh, the Corinthians need to step up to the plate and, and do what the Macedonians did because of broader relationships in the church and the mission being involved in the mission and that kind of thing. And it is, it is driven by joy because it's kingdom value. And it's driven by relationship. It's not just driven by, kind of, okay, here's a need. Let's throw money at a need or something like that. One thing we were talking about at lunch, I, I wish we had time to bring Natasha up here and to unpack this in terms of some of the creative things their church is doing uh, in, in reaching into and building discipleship in townships in a way that, you know, are uh, having an impact then for the gospel out of authentic relationships and building of kingdom work and discipleship, and that being the foundation and kind of the center of gravity for then the gospel spreading in that context. Is that a close enough, accurate way of, of saying it? Um, at times, what we can do is we can, we can respond sincerely to um, needs in a social situation where we just throw money at something. Uh, there's, we were talking about the book, When Helping Hurts, where these guys are talking about sometimes when Western people with a lot of money have come in and thrown money at an at a impoverished situation, it actually, long term, ends up causing more problems than, than good because it's, it's kind of putting a Band-Aid on the situation and not dealing with some of the systemic problems. I was sharing uh, with them at the table that I had a couple of friends in Franklin, Tennessee, which is south of Nashville. And uh, this was years ago, but Scott was um, the missions pastor at the large, wealthy Presbyterian church in Franklin. And so out of a genuine impulse, what his mission group was doing is they were going into hard bargain is what it was called. It was the uh, impoverished section of Franklin, and they were going in and they were taking air conditioners to people, you know, to families. They were taking these kids from the slums out to ball games and doing all this kind of stuff. And one day Scott had the idea, he was just walking by the, the Black Baptist Church there um, on the edge of Hard Bargain, and he thought, I'll go in and see if the pastor's here. So he walked in, and Denny Denston was the pastor and uh, Denny was there in the church, and he said to Scott, Scott came in and said, hey, I just want to let you know we're here, we're trying to help out, and that kind of thing. And uh, Denny said, yeah. He said, you know, you guys can come down here and you can buy the affection of these kids with throwing air conditions at them, taking the ball games, stuff like that. But he said, when they get shot in the middle of the night, they're going to call me. And they, they actually wept. Scott repented. They, they became best friends. And Scott, the guy from the Presbyterian Church, moved his family to Hardbarg, and he actually adopted a couple of kids of color. And uh, they, they, you know, started a type of ministry. He ended up actually launching a type of ministry in, in that community that became a very authentic thing. And, and the basis of their, rela or their relationship became the basis for a min ministry called the Empty Hands Fellowship. And it was this idea where all these ministers from these different ethnic backgrounds came together to say to the Lord, Lord, all we bring is our empty hands. 
Show us what, what needs to fill our hands in terms of the work and our relationship with each other. And, and a lot of these guys got together twice a week. They got together once a week for prayer and once a week for food and fellowship. And God did an amazing thing out of this work, but it began with a guy realizing that the answer is not just throwing resources at a situation. It's actually developing relationships. And it's, it's joining together in mission on the basis of the relationships. And, and so something that that you might think about as you, as you think about the principles that we're seeing here. What Paul is doing is he's saying that our dealing with financial resources is something that has to flow out of joy, relationship with Christ, run along the lines of relationships in the church where we're looking out there at the needs in the church and saying, how can our wealth have an impact on other parts of the church here, not just throwing money at them, but developing relationships and building community in a way that's very authentic. And I think that's part of what Paul is appealing to here. Okay? So uh, what we're going to see here in this um, next movement is how Paul talks about um, why he sent Titus and these other brothers um, on this mission to Corinth, um, and we're just going to call this Titus's mission. And in order to do this, it's a long passage, so what I want us to do is to um, just kind of read through it. And I apologize, I feel like today what I'm doing is kind of rushing through sections and just commenting on a few things. I hope it's helpful what we're doing, but uh, I think we're, we just can't slow down as much as we have with other parts because we're not, we're not going to get finish with what we need to, and I don't mean to rush through it, but if you don't mind, what I'm going to do is kind of read a section, make some comments about this, see if you have questions about that part, and then we're going to move on if that's all right. My, my goal here is not for you to get all the bits, but for you to at least get the framework of what's going on so that you can go back in and do deeper study a little bit later on. So let's give that a shot anyway. If you have other questions about the first 15 verses then um, ask those when we, I mean, feel free to say, hey, if we could go back just for a minute to earlier, then, then that's fine. Okay, look at verse 16 with me, if you will. Now, thanks be to God who placed in Titus's heart the same enthusiasm I have for you. For he accepted our request and was so eager to act on it that he voluntarily is leaving for his visit with you. Now, do you see a theme here? He, he's already celebrated the Macedonians because they voluntarily gave to the collection for Jerusalem. So you have this idea of volunteerism. Now he is saying Titus actually is coming on this mission to you. And by the way, Titus is in the room as this is being read to the Corinthians, isn't he? Right? So Titus is there. And uh, Paul is celebrating Titus because of his volunteerism. He says, look, he was just excited about coming and being involved in this ministry to you guys. So, so you have this, this theme of volunteerism, of enthusiasm that's flowing out of the relationship. Verse 18, along with him, we are sending the brother who is universally praised throughout all the churches for his gospel work. Again, gospel-centeredness here. Now, we don't know who this brother is. In fact, the two brothers that are mentioned in this passage, uh, Paul does not identify them. I'm not sure why he does not, but 
The reality is, my wife is carrying out the ministry of coffee again. Thank you. But the reality is, um, we, we're not told their names. Um, they were standing in the room as the letters being read to the Corinthians, when this letter arrives to the Corinthians. So they have been introduced to these guys. Paul just doesn't feel the need to mention them uh, by name at this point. But he's referring to one of the two traveling companions that are there. And the reason why this person goes to the Corinthians is not because he was a keen financial investor. It's because he was renowned for his gospel work. So you see how mission-centric that is? It's, it's you know, not saying, well, we've sent this guy down to help you guys get the collection together, and we sent the best financial expert that we could find. No, it's not that if somebody has those skills and those gifts, it's not that that's not an important thing, but, but I think it is significant that Paul, as he is describing the situation, what is at the center is the gospel, mission, that people are, are doing this because mission is really at the heart of what is going on. Uh, not only that, but he also has been appointed by the churches, this verse 19, to be our traveling companion in relation to this gift being delivered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness to help. In other words, Paul's saying we're getting this thing set up where I'm sending Titus, I'm sending this other guy, and he's been appointed by the churches of Macedonia. There's the relational network, right? So this guy is, was appointed because of his gospel passion by the churches of Macedonia to be our traveling companion in relation to this gift. In other words, this guy is going to go with Paul all the way to Judea, and it's going to be delivered for the glory of the Lord and to show our readiness to help. Talking about readiness to help in Jerusalem. Look at verse 20. We are organizing things in this way so that no one can criticize us over this large sum of money we are administering. For we are giving careful consideration not only to what is noble in the Lord's eyes, but also what is noble in the eyes of people. All right, this is, this is one of the most significant principles in this section. Now, you tell me, what is the principle? How would you describe what Paul is saying here? He's saying, we've set things up this way. In other words, officials, of people who are kind of official representatives of the church in Macedonia. Remember, the Macedonians had given to the collection. And you've got this brother coming. We're actually going to find out in a minute there was another brother who also joined the team. But right now, he's saying, we set these things up this way. We have this structure for this process of giving and delivering the money so that we would be doing what is noble not only in the eyes of the Lord himself. So remember, we keep seeing Paul pull us back to him. Do, he's doing this stuff out before the Lord. So there's a re recurrence of that principle. But he says what is also noble in the eyes of people. Now, you, you express, what is, how would you describe that principle? Okay, the other mic is right here, okay. How would you describe it? Just raise your hand and, yeah, back here. I'm sorry, brother. Say. 
okay? That's a very good way of saying it, that um, financial integrity is carried out, and we would need to unpack that just a little bit, uh, even before other people so that the gospel is not undermined. Okay, that's one way of saying it. John, you, you have, can you shout kind of loudly over here? Okay, yeah, it's a, a, a wonderful twin principle here that, that goes back to that foundational reality that what we are doing, we are living out with the audience of one. We're living this out before the Lord to please Him ultimately, but we are in a relational network with people immediately in the church and then broadly even as people in the world are watching us and looking at us. And so the extension of, of that is... We want to have such crystal clear integrity in the situation that it's not going to impede the advance of the gospel. It's not going to end up being a stumbling block uh, in a situation so that people could criticize the way that we are handling things. Um, you can imagine in this, in this context that Paul's dealing with, think about this, he's dealing with false teachers who are motivated by money. In fact, the whole thing with the sophists was going around, look good, relate with like people, to get yourself advanced and to make a lot of money. And, and that appealed in the Corinthian value system. But Paul is saying we want to be very distinct from the kind of shenanigans that people pull in the world. We want to have such an administration, and, and the language that he's using here actually was used in broader Judaism of people who um, every year money was taken from Jewish communities around the Mediterranean world to the temple to pay the temple tax and be involved in the, in the ongoing support of the temple. And the language that he's using here actually is the same language at points that was used of official representatives from Jewish communities who would go back to Jerusalem and, and help participate in you know, the financial support of the temple. So Paul's saying that in, in our context, in our mission, in our ministry, we want to conduct things in such a way that it's just very clear what this is about and how the money is being handled. Now, the, the implications of this are, would be obvious, wouldn't they, in terms of, of our church context and our situation. Shared leadership in matters of money multiplicity of people who are involved in a money situation in the church, not just one person who is handling the financial resources. My dad grew up in rural Kentucky, in western Kentucky on a farm, and he said one of the things that happened, he remembers from his growing up years in his little Baptist church in the country in western, western Kentucky was that the guy who was the financial manager of the church embezzled a lot of money from the church and, and was ripping the church off for, for years and caused a huge scandal and greatly damaged the witness of that church because they had one person that they trusted with the financial situation and that ended up being a bad situation. So we would say multiplicity of leadership, having, having the financial accountability extend to, to it being a broader community kind of thing. And then I would say just very, very basically, we need to have 
um, our financial workings in our church, something that is transparent that, you know, people could come in and take a look at from the outside uh, so that, you know, it, it's clear that, that everything is working the way that it, it should. A lot of ministries today will have uh, financial accountability from broader kind of oversight organizations who are helping them with audits and things like that to make sure that everything is, is clear and above board, right? So I think that that's, that's one of the principles that you have embedded in what Paul is talking about here. Um, so verse 22, and we are sending with them our brother, this is the second person, whose diligence we have often proved in many ways and who now is much more eager than ever because of his great confidence in you. If anyone raises a question about Titus, he is my partner and co-worker in our ministry to you. Or if a question comes up about our brothers, these other two guys, they are the church's envoys, Christ's glory. Therefore, display openly before the churches the proof of your love and the accuracy of our boast to them about you. So what Paul is saying is, um, here's, here's the situation. I am sending these two brothers to you. They are representatives of the churches. And I am sending Titus as kind of my official representative to kind of get things moving again with the collection. And if anybody has a question about him, he is my partner and my co-worker in our ministry to you. And these guys are the church's envoy. So he's saying, look, how everybody responds. I said a few moments ago that, you know, in chapter 7, we see that the churches, the house churches, the majority had responded well to Titus. Paul talks about that in chapter 7. And I, and I said at that point that though we probably could suggest that there were some house churches, some leaders that didn't respond as well to Titus, we see those dealt with in chapters 10 through 13. But even here, Paul's hinting at it because he says, uh, look, if anybody wants to stand up and oppose Titus and kind of fight back against this process of him being my representative and these brothers representing the churches, then know, know that they're stepping out of line if they do that. And so what I call you Corinthians to do again is embrace these guys, embrace the process that they're initiating in the church, and, um, and welcome them as an expression of your love. And uh, so he gives them this, this big challenge here with this envoy. Okay, let's, put, let's push the pause button there for a minute. Again, we're just here, to, we're just getting big picture framework, getting kind of the general idea of what's going on here. Let's see if you have questions about anything that, that, that we see here in chapter 8 or want to make a point or kind of extend uh, the application a little bit. Raise a question about something. Yep. Is it Richie? So my question is just back to the, the thing where to, Paul talks about the giving. Um, I know we all, whether we want to accept it or not, is that ministry has to do with finance. And I have been in a lot of conversations where people say, oh, the church is just after, you know, my money, my money, my money. And it's almost, I see that Paul, you know, he's very strategic when he actually writes this because what, I, what you said with the false apostles is that they were milking the people financially. Yeah. 
But here, you know, Paul writes and says, you must now give. It's almost like, yes, man, what's wrong with these people? All they want is my money. Uh, um, but I see that he's like, there's a way that he actually waves. He starts off with God who gave already now. They should give. And then he says, okay, you guys initiated to give in the first place. So he's using this strategically. And what I wanted to, to ask is that, you know, how do like the spiritual maturity, like when people get saved, when do you actually start teaching them? Hey, it's time that you actually start, you know, putting into practice that mm. which God has given to you. No, yeah. that, I, think that's a, I think that's a great question. Um, I don't know if it's manifested this way in your church or not, but one of the things that's become a pattern like in, in the church that we help plant, and uh, I've heard this, I think I've heard it done already in Vancouver, but they'll make the statement like if, if money is being, you know, received, like if they do take up a formal offering or something like that, or they mention it, they'll make clear in the service, they'll say, now look, if you're here as a visitor and you're not a follower of Christ, we're not asking for you to give. This is something that believers do uh, as a natural aspect of their discipleship. And so um, we just want to make clear in this moment of giving that if you are a visitor here, we do not, we just let, you know, the plate pass by you or just pass by the, the offering thing on the way out the door because we're not, we're not anticipating that, that you would be involved in the giving unless you just feel like that's something that you want to do. Now, you, you see what that's doing is already with a non-believer who's not a Christian yet, that's already beginning to disciple them and say this is something that, a, that's, that believers do out of their hearts and out of their discipleship. It's not something that we're just trying to get people's money. You know, so, so one, one thing would be to kind of have that be the ethos of your church, that we're not just trying to get, get people in here so we can milk them dry, and, and giving is an aspect of, of discipleship. I would say the foundational thing should be that when people, let's say a wealthy guy comes to Christ or whatever, I would say that, that your, all of your emphasis needs to be on getting him grounded in the Lord, helping him to understand the, the Lordship of Christ, uh, helping him make the, all the, you know, the small decisions in his life about how he's living his life and, and all that kind of stuff, and, and allow the financial implications of that to gradually come and take hold of his heart and, and you know, direct him in the, in the financial uh, resources. I think that eventually you know, will be a natural outflow of his discipleship, not something that's foundational in his discipleship. Um, so... How do we make a distinction between what the health and wealth guys are doing and what we do as a natural part of discipleship in the church? It has to do with emphasis and motivation and foundation. And, and you know, that's, that is the difference. So motivation in health and wealth context is you need to give so you'll be even more rich. That's the motivation. The motivation in a, in a, in a proper Christian theology is we give as a natural outflow of our discipleship because we're pas more passionate about the kingdom than we are anything else. And so it, it does end up being a, a matter of discipleship and theological training and, and, and heart and, and passion. The thing that I loved about what we were talking about around the table uh, with the church here and, and also with Hope Church, uh, one of the brothers was telling us about some of what Hope is doing, is you can see that, that the... the the natural flow into the townships, for instance, of these ministries is out of a passion and a heart for the gospel and a love for people. Um, and, and, and your resources are going to follow your loves, right? 
Resources are going to flow toward your loves and your passions. And um, we, we just need, we need to um, allow God to keep shaping us in terms of discipleship and our passions. And then those resources are going to follow those. You know, if we're, if we're in a place and in a church where we just are, we don't care about the poor, it's all about us, it's a discipleship issue. It's not a financial issue, it's a discipleship issue. Okay, all right, over here, yep. Do you have a green light? Okay, got it. There you go. Thank you. Um, so I, I would want to know if you have any comments on, so we spoke about financial accountability for the church, the ministry. Um, do, you, do you think that should, should naturally flow out to individual ministers' accountability with their finances? Mm. Oh, you're, you're just talking too close to home here now. Uh, you know, you're meddling now. You're not asking. No, no and I, I say that with a little bit of, little bit of joking, but, but really, you know, I, I mean, personally, for me right now, I'm, I'm, as I'm teaching through this stuff, I'm thinking, wow, we're at a point in our lives where we're suddenly moved to a new place. We don't have any of the brothers right around us and that kind of thing. We're in financial transition and upheaval and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's a good time for us to come, come and, you know, think through where we are financially, but it's also going to mean having brothers in our immediate network that are walking with us. I, I do think that... Um, yeah, I mean, I need, to, I need to think about how do you do this in terms of a formal way? Do you invite people into um, the details of your, your, you know, the spreadsheet or your budget and how, how that is working? Yeah, maybe so. You know, when you are, when you are, are, um, are, are trying to, to live out the gospel well in your own life, it is going to flow into asking questions in your immediate um, relationships for people to help you figure out how do I live this out, right? So, I, I mean, this is not a good example. I'm not offering this as an example, but I know um, a number of years ago when we were doing the Read the Bible for Life um, thing, there was more money coming in than normal because we, we had a lot of books that were being sold in churches and things like that. And I remember it was uncomfortable, not, not because we, we didn't like having those resources. Those resources really helped, like with our children's college and things like that. But it was all of a sudden, we went from a situation where things were pretty tight month to month. All, all of a sudden, there were, there were these extra resources. And so I can remember talking to a couple of different friends during that time and saying, here is our financial situation. Here's how we're giving and the things that we're giving to. Does this seem right? To, I mean, what do you think about this? Does this seem like we are doing what we ought to be doing in this situation. And um, so I, I think there at least ought to be that, that in our, in our community, as we are grappling with financial questions and situations, we ought to have people who are close enough to us in the body, who are walking with us, who are helping us figure out what discipleship looks like, that, that we're open with them, not so they dictate to us you know, okay, you ought to be giving 13% rather than 12% or, you know, that kind of thing. But, but just because we want to make sure that we are on track and doing the things that we, that we need to do. And, and to be honest, I mean, this is a, 
It, I think it's in a Western culture where we have lots of resources and we're, you know, we're well-fed and we have homes and we have a car. It's just, it's just going to be a struggle on where does this come out? Is it okay for me to take my family out for a nice meal? Um, you know, that, that kind of thing. And I think the answer to that probably is yes. But how is that in balance with the way that I am giving to the poor, that I am giving to support the broader mission of the church? that kind of thing. There's a great quote from uh, John Calvin, and uh, Calvin, Calvin said this, and I think it, it hits on this point of how do we deal with the fact that we have surplus sometimes in our resources. He said, the Lord has not prescribed to us an omer, you know, measure, or any other measure of the food we have each day, but he has commended to us frugality and temperance, and has forbidden anyone from going to excess because of his abundance. Thus, those who have riches, whether inherited or won by their own industry and labor, are to remember that what is left over from their basic needs is not meant for intemperance or luxury, but for relieving the needs of the brethren." I think that's a, good, that's a good thought. The New Testament never says that the rich should become poor. But it does say that the rich ought to elaborately share their resources with those who have need in the context of the church. Those are two different things. So, I, you know, I have to at times come back and say the natural patterns of my culture are to, you know, constantly spend money on these luxury items and different things like that. How is my discipleship, how is Scripture pressing into me and shaping me in a way that my resources are flowing to the poor, they're flowing to the mission of the church, and I'm not just constantly using the surplus in my life to buy the next luxury item or, you know, or whatever. It becomes kind of a, they become kingdom kind of questions. And that's, it's not always easy to discern. When we were building our house that we moved from in Tennessee, the question that we started with uh, and the Lord worked it out, and I won't go into the details, but where we were able to purchase land and then sell part of that land to pay for our part of the land, and then I, I was the contractor on the house. So we ended up with, with much more house than we should have been able to afford, but the question we started with was not how much house can we afford, but the question was what are the ministries that God has called us to do over the next couple of decades and how can our house facilitate the ministries that God has called us to do? So have a larger gathering room because we would have large groups of students over. We had a homeschooling room because Pat educated our children through their years. We had a, a study for me to write because I was called to the ministry of writing. So we kind of approached it from that standpoint. And so we need to think through our, res our finances in the same way. And if we look at the budget and say, how, how are these being marshaled? for, you know, kingdom purposes and fulfilling principles like we see in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 of, of being elaborate and giving and generous to those who don't have as much as we have. So in terms of accountability, I would say for some of us, we need, you know, more, we need direct accountability, but you've got to discern that in your own context, in your situation. Okay, somebody else. Good questions. Anybody else have a question or a, th or a thought here?
Okay. Well, I have another one. It's not related, but uh, recently I was in a conversation with some brothers. Uh, we know of a ministry that received uh, some money from non-believers, uh, like m money for ministry from non-believers. Uh, any comments on that? No. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, um, I think you, the, one, the caution there is the motivation behind that. You know, is, is that money coming with strings attached or, you know, what's the source of the money? You know, that, that kind of thing. But I, I really, I don't personally have a direct, I haven't had that experience really. Um, so I just, I really don't know what to say. Does anybody have a thought on that? What do you do in terms of financial resources that have come from non-believers? Michael's saying, we'll take it at Truth Walk. Um, we'll take that money. I, I was actually saying Werner wants the mic, and he's just so far away, and I've just walked from there. So. Oh. <laughs> National Lottery was supporting one of your projects? They wanted to, okay. Oh, <laughs> okay, that's a big string, right? It's a big string attached. Okay, here's, here's something here. I would just say, um, I don't know if, uh, for me, it's uh, accepting money perhaps from the lotto would be a problem, but for unbelievers, I don't think that would be a major problem for me. Uh, unbelievers give every Sunday money at our church, so... Uh, so this is common experience in your church. Okay, there you go. Um, all right. Well, yeah, I mean, there, there's a sense in which you, you thank the Lord for the resources that come in. And yeah, that's a stumper. I just, I'm having a hard time there. Yep. I mean, just along that thought, what about Exodus where they take the wealth of Egypt? Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, plundering the Egyptians, right? Uh, <laughs> there's a biblical principle right there. Take as much as you can from those pagans around you. Um, no, no, I, I know what you, yeah. So, I mean, there are situations, certainly, in, in life and in the world in which God provides in surprising ways. I'm just, I'm just saying that we... We need to be very careful about that, um, because if we're not care if we're not careful about it, we can get entangled in relationships and even social obligation, like you had in the ancient world, um, which which can become problematic. I know with our ministry in Asia um, and and with the church in China, there have been some questions that have come up like this, where you have these very very wealthy people. Who, who want to give, but, but when you probe a little bit, there tend to be hidden motives behind that. Wanting control, you know, it becomes, it becomes messy. And so I'm just saying, I'm not saying that God could never use a, a non-believer to do something significant financially in partnership with the church or, or whatever. I'm just saying you'd have to have a lot of wisdom. That's not the normal flow in relationship that we see in the scriptures. That's not the normal pattern of, you know, how this, this stuff works out. Yep. 
I was just thinking now, reading quite recently the building of the temple, how Solomon had cedar imported from some of these foreign nations, yeah. kings who didn't recognize God, and given stuff that was used in the temple. So in, in that sense, it was, but they knew what is being used for, and there was no other strings attached than, than the agreement, the political agreement between Solomon and that nation. So I would agree with you that the, the giver needs to know where, where the finances is going. Yes. And there needs to be, the, the motives needs to be very clear. Yeah. I think that's, that's right to an extent. Um, and we have one more. Let me just say one word about that. This is complicated. We don't have time to go there. But in, in the King's passage, which is unpacking that about Solomon's building of the temple, it's very interesting that Solomon actually ends up building the temple in the design of a pagan temple in his area. And uh, the, the narrative of that part of, of the that, that part of the narrative, the emphasis is almost carried out with a narrator with a wink and a nod. We know where this is going. And the culmination is with the, the, the uh, collapse of Solomon's integrity and everything at the end. Because he has pagans who are doing God talk. Oh, the Lord your God has provided you all this kind of stuff. But um, there are distinct differences between the way Solomon builds the temple and the way the tabernacle was built in Exodus. And we don't have time to go into all that, but that's another, that's another story for another day. But I think your, your points are right. That, you know, you do have them giving and it's, you know, in the name of the Lord and all that kind of thing. But in that narrative specifically, uh, there are hints there that if you, in fact, let me give you one example. If you follow that narrative, it, you remember I talked about a chiastic structure, which A, B, C, D, E, and then it goes down D, C, B, A. You have that kind of structure in the Solomon narrative on the building of the temple. Guess what's right at the center, which is the main point of what's going on? Solomon stops building the temple and he builds his own house and a house for his girlfriend. That's at the center of that narrative. And I think, I think what the narrator is doing is he's saying that underneath all of this God talk and all Solomon's point is something else is going on in his motivations. Now, does God come in at the end? God three times in that narrative says, if you follow me, then I will be faithful and I will keep you in the land and I will bless this place. He repeats, God repeats that three times. He says, if you do all this, and yes, God does fill the temple with glory at the end, but if you notice the narrative almost immediately turns to the collapse of Solomon because he violates the principles of Deuteronomy. Uh, he has a whole bunch of wives. He has too much gold. He has lots of horses and chariots. And, and so you probably have read that narrative like I have, and you get to the end, you go, what? What happened? I mean, this, he just collapsed so quickly. But really, the narrative all along has been winking and nodding and saying, yeah, Solomon was a great guy, amazingly gifted, but we know where this is going. You know? So I'm not contradicting what you said, but there, there's more going on there in that narrative too. It says in Ecclesiastes, they are to, they are to collect wealth for, for the believers. Okay. I haven't really studied that passage, um, but, you know, it, I think at least maybe part of what's going on there is that in, in Jewish wisdom literature, what happens to the people who are unbelievers and the ungodly and that kind of stuff, their wealth eventually flows somewhere. And uh, God at times turns that inside out to support the things of, you know, the righteous. 
So again, that's part of the idea is that that could, certainly that can happen. Um, but, you know, so I'll, I'll kind of leave it there. But thank you for, for bringing that up. I mean, that's, that it is true that there are times that you have unbelievers in the world that in a surprising way end up supporting the work of God, even unintentionally at times. So that can happen. Okay. Uh, yes, right over here, brother. Here, here, I'll bring it. I'll bring you the microphone. Sorry if you've already covered this, but just a question again on verse 15, um, the, the, the kind of written passage, uh, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Just a bit of more explanation. I'm struggling to see how that connects with it. Sure. Yeah, the principle is, if you go back to the wilderness wandering narratives and, that kind of, and the giving of the law and, and that kind of thing, there was a principle in Israel um, there and you know it's it's the manna I think it's the manna context and all of that um, to where there was a rhythm to what was going on in the supply of resources if I can say it that way and what God was doing is in God's provision of what people needed to eat on a daily basis there was kind of an equality of what was happening God was was providing food in such a way that people were able to gather it up and they had what they needed for the day. And so Paul is kind of playing off of that principle and saying, you know, in the economy of God, God provides in such a way that his people generally are taken care of. So if I can, if I can simplify it, basically what he's saying is, look, as you look at God pouring out resources on the churches of the Mediterranean world, God's ultimate intention, the principle there, is that this provision is not so that one church is, is luxurious and another church is impoverished, the principle is that, that what, what God would desire is that those resources be spread around so that everybody has what they need. Now, again, this is not socialism. It's not, it's not any kind of enforced, you know, you know, working out, everybody distribute to a common thing. But let's, it's the idea of use your resources in a way that then can broadly be used for the kingdom in significant ways. The, the denomination I came from, one of the brilliant things that they did do well, they did a lot of things poorly uh, in, in their history, but one thing that they did do well was called the cooperative program. And what that meant was that churches, all the churches throughout the denomination, gave into a fund that then was used for education and missions. And part of the missions thing was to care for the poor and do all of these other kinds of things. And so the denomination gave into this fund so that these would be broadly distributed to meet kingdom purposes. So uh, just two examples, the, the seminary that I went to, the seminaries were funded and supplemented so that when, when I went to a seminary, my seminary education actually cost very little because it was supported by this, by this general fund. Um, another example was uh, every year, even now, uh, the denomination, in one week every year, they give to a thing called the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. Lottie Moon was a missionary to China. Um, every year in one week, the denomination raises over $100 million for missions in one week. Um, so I'm not, I'm not saying that's the right model. I'm just saying that's an example of saying... How can we 
get money together in a way that then it becomes more distributed. So, but that's when you, you have large wealthy churches giving to that. You have small churches giving to that. It, it, it's just a way of how can we distribute it in such a way that there's more even thing. I'm not saying that's the only way to do it or the right way to do it. I'm just saying that's one example of how this might be embodied where you say, let's spread this around in a way that, that is, um, is distributed to where it's needed. So, yeah, a brother here, and then the brother here. So, so um, just, uh... Thank you. You mentioned the difference between kind of a, like a Greco-Roman culture and the way they gave and the Jewish culture and then yeah. obviously the Christian culture. And you mentioned how in the Jewish culture and Christian there was generosity towards the poor. I don't know if there's anything documented that you know about um, whether the rates of poverty within Jewish culture or even Christian spaces was significantly less than like a Greco-Roman world. That's not really my area of expertise. Um, I do know that we had... Well, yes, let me, let me just say this. What we do know from church history, what we do know from history, is, for instance, um, one of the practices in Greco-Roman world was exposure of children. So, in other words, taking a child that was born, instead of killing it outright, you'd leave it out in the alley so it would die. It's exposure. And so, early in church history, you have this pattern of the church being the one who took those children in and raised them in the church. You have, uh, you have patterns uh, as you get on in the second, third, fourth century. There were times, um, and I, I, again, this is not my area of expertise, uh, but I, I've read of situations where uh, you would have plague come and hit Rome, for instance, and all the pagans were fleeing, leaving their own family members to escape the plague, and it was the Christians who moved into the neighborhoods and took care of people, even at the cost of their own lives. And that's one of the things that caused the rapid expansion of the Christian movement is because the Christians were the ones who were actually taking care of the people who were dying and, and impoverished and that kind of thing. So I, I, it's not my area of expertise. I, I don't know specific statistics, but I do know that one of the patterns that you have early on in the life of the church is that the Christians had a different ethic that spoke to these situations, and that was actually became a vehicle for the carrying forward of the gospel. So I'm, I'm sorry to inadequately answer the question, but let me hand it to this brother back here. Please could I just ask you to comment on um, verse 9, which uh, I've heard prosperity teachers use as a reason for us to become rich. What? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Yeah, you know, when we're dealing with hermeneutics, um, what we have to do is we have to deal with the issue of intention. What is Paul intending to emphasize here? You tell me, what is he emphasizing? Is he emphasizing becoming poor or, or becoming rich? What's the emphasis of that text? It's becoming poor. He's using Jesus as the pattern to say, uh, he became, in other words, he gave of his resources, he emptied himself of the resources so that others would become rich spiritually, I think, is the implication. It's not financially. And so what I would say is the application then is to the, to the Corinthians, in this case, to pour them out 
in what might seem like poverty, impoverishment, so that other people could be benefited. That's, that's clearly the teaching of that passage. Does that make sense? Yeah, so you would say that the, that the intention, what, what Paul's driving at here, is not becoming rich but becoming poor. That's the point. And, and again, you have to read that well because he's not speaking about everybody taking on poverty. He's just, he's just using the, the pattern that you have in Jesus of pouring your resources out for the sake of others and for gospel mission. And, and boy, that's, that's the discipleship impulse of that. All right, did you have something? Michael has a few things to say. All right, Michael, why don't you? Oh, I'm sorry, somebody, I'm sorry, who am I missing? Oh, I'm sorry, sister. Oh, yep, didn't see you over there. Nice hat. Thanks. <laughs> um, I just wanted to maybe, like, ask and check if this is right, but maybe in answer to some of those questions, in terms of the collecting for the manor and that sort of stuff, and those who gathered much didn't have any left over and that sort of thing. But um, isn't it possible that that also refers to the fact that Paul's trying to reassure them that they shouldn't be afraid to give of what they have because they're not going to be hard done by afterwards. God's going to make sure that they're provided for and their security is not in their riches. Yeah, that's actually an outstanding point. And, and he's going to actually emphasize that in chapter 9. When he comes back around and he's saying, and my God's going to supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. So he's, he's going to come around at the end and assure them of that. And that's a very good point. Thank you for making that point. Um, that part of that is, and that's, he actually says that in the immediate context, doesn't he? So that in the future, if you have this lack, then God's going to supply your need in the same way. You know, so um, he actually kind of comments in that way, so thank you for bringing it out. But he really emphasizes as, as he gets into chapter 9 that because really behind all this, God is the giver. Uh, God is going to meet the needs of his people. And so if you're faithful in giving and pouring your resources out, you don't have to be worried that, well, evidently I'm going to starve here because God is going to meet your needs. God is going to meet your needs. Okay, Michael? Okay, I, I'm, I'm going to throw up a few thoughts. And okay, is this... I, I was, well... You go right ahead. It's a both end, so keep the, keep the mic. Okay. So the, the, the first thought is... Just with regard to the taking money from unbelievers, I have, I have one testimony and one observation for you. And if you want another writing project, like if Pat thinks you don't write enough, then this is something you could explore. But the thought is, you, you know that we have an affiliation with Christian Leadership Program, the work in the Cape Flats, and many of you have met Neil at some stage. Anyway, long story short, we had a dinner with some Christian business people and also some unbelievers who came to the dinner and a Hindu friend of mine started contributing to his discipleship work in the Cape Flats and many of the Christians didn't actually contribute but I, I think one of the points at least I would put into the discussion is just saying that what Neil does is very clear and there were no obligations I mean he wasn't asking the person for money, and there was no kind of implication of if we give the money, you need to stop preaching the gospel and sort of start only building orphanages or something of that nature. And the thought which you could explore from a writing perspective is at least to some degree you have this case 
with seminaries and governments in the US where you have government funding coming to seminaries and it's a big issue and you are facing this issue where there's been discussions saying if you're outspoken about God's sexual standards, same-sex marriage, etc., that funding could be cut. And I think part of your, at least the institutions with integrity, part of what they say is, well, this is what we need to teach to be biblically faithful, and if the money gets cut, the money gets cut. But on the other hand, if the government does continue for the next while to give tax breaks to biblical institutions in the US, which they don't do to the same extent here, then that means the money goes further. So in other words, as long as the integrity of the message and living before God is not compromised and you're not becoming beholden to other people, I think you could make a reasonable case for the fact that God uses human institutions like Paul's Roman citizenship or something like that, that in cases where nothing that pertains to the gospel, the integrity of the ministry is compromised, you are being just a good steward by structuring things efficiently. I think, I think that's a very good point. Um, the, the other thing that, that maybe is related in a little bit, and, and I just want to agree with you, I, I think that, that, that makes a good point. One thing that we talked about at lunch that I, I'd forgotten about too is sometimes when you are witnessing and trying to reach out to unbelievers who are businessmen or whatever, actually getting them involved in philanthropic uh, types of work can be a means of evangelism. So uh, what you do is you get them engaged in giving or, or ministering in like the townships or whatever, and they, uh, I think the way Louis expressed it was, they can immediately see that there's a need there that they could help with, so you attract them by helping with the situation, and then in that process, they're around believers, and they learn about discipleship and hear about the gospel, and so that's another maybe example of where you would have unbelievers involved in the process, but again, that's a very gospel-centered, you know, very intentional kind of thing that you're trying to draw them into. So maybe those two uh, questions surrounding such situation, uh, is this, is the intention here drawing people into the orbit of the gospel, you know, the givers? And then secondly, is the ministry itself maintaining integrity and the integrity is not compromised by those who are power people coming in from the outside and giving? So those would be two good principles or guidelines. Michael, are you going to, are you going to take uh, well, some things and talk for a bit you, here you, before we I, have I a can, break? I, I'll... Maybe I'm going to do this as a panel, and I'm going to sit next to you over here. Okay. Um, I, I just wanted to make one other. <laughs> I'll cross my leg. Why don't you but... join me? Come on. Yeah. So I, one other point I, I wanted to make, just to do with what George was talking about with the, the tension of ministry, is you have in the Bible this imperative to support the poor, Etc. But you also have Paul saying, for example, in Thessalonians, if the guy won't work, then he mustn't eat. And I would suggest that there is a kind of biblical wisdom that says there are some people who just have really fallen on hard times. Maybe it's disability, maybe it's a case of, of widows or orphans or something like that, where they really need the support of the church. And there's some cases where people are just being lazy and disobeying biblical instruction and it's a better biblical stewardship 
to not give in those instances. So I think it's, part of this is also a matter of the whole counsel of God and looking on a case-by-case -case basis um, how things should look. And maybe as a, a bit of a transition on that, I want to pick up on one thing that, that George was talking about, about saying this is often a discipleship issue and not a monetary issue. And I want to make a few comments partly based on discussions I've had with people, partly talking about truth walk, but I want you to hear this as not being so much about truth walk as it is about discipleship, where maybe truth walk plays a part, but it's, it's, it's only a part of the bigger picture. And I think the bigger picture, to, to round back to the, the comment that came out there about prosperity preaching and saying, Christ became poor so that we could be rich. There are, sadly, both um, imports from America, imports from the rest of Africa, and locally grown heretics who, who teach that sort of thing. And unfortunately, often they prey on the weakest people with the less with the least biblical knowledge and discernment and it becomes my background is in finance so it becomes a pyramid scheme where the people right at the top of the pyramid get rich they pilfer the people in in your language it's pilfer um they they pilfer the people at the bottom of the pyramid so instead of protecting the sheep and feeding the sheep they fleece the sheep and bring the gospel into disrepute. And that is a real scourge. And part of what I would suggest that people like us who are discipled and in more solid churches and are, are being challenged to discernment, part of our responsibility, I think, is helping people to think biblically and to, to not attach their names to questionable things, number one, but also to train business people to give their hearts first to the Lord, as my brother here was pointing out from that passage, and then to the Lord's work. In, in other words, not to just be writing checks to appease their conscience and get a fundraiser to go quiet, but really to be involved in the work of the Lord in this age and to give themselves to the Lord, but be sufficiently engaged with the cause of Christ and good stewards of what God has entrusted to them such that their treasure follows where their heart is and their mind that is being transformed to love the Lord leads them to give in certain directions um, not just, and, and here I will make a point, and these are just thoughts, so forgive me if, if some of them ramble on a, lit, a little one into the other, but one of the things I've also seen in ministry is sometimes with, sadly, with American ministries in particular, they have superb fundraising engines, and what happens is the ministries that have the best fundraising ability or the best marketing teams or something like that attract the funds, but sometimes the best biblically grounded Christ-honoring works because either they don't have resources or they don't have the expertise or something like that, those kind of works can languish in the background. And that's part of the reason why, with Truth Walk, to give you a practical example, 
we are quite active in supporting Christian Leadership Program, which is the discipleship work that takes place in the Cape Flats. And to give you an example, they, they train, I want to say probably over, over their couple of year diplo diploma program, I think they have like a hundred some people, men involved at any one time. And these are guys who pastor in the Cape Flats, which is a, a crime-ridden area, gangsterism, drugs, high unemployment, alcoholism. And churches in that area may have a budget, let's say, of 15,000 rand a month. And the pastor may earn a couple of thousand rand. Now, they are doing amazing work. I mean... Neil, my friend who, who pastors down there, is also on the faculty at Bible Institute. That church will have midweek Bible studies. They'll have multiple services on a Sunday. Um, they'll have prayer meetings. He's involved in prison discipleship work. And they go on mission trips and look to you know, assist churches in other areas. Now, I, I would just submit that an organization like that, which has a total annual budget of, let's say, $40,000, um, 600,000 rand, that that's something that we should think about giving towards and say sometimes that certain mega ministries from overseas that are, that are really well funded and they're in the limelight and that they might, might not lead, need our support as much as some of these other causes. And that's just one example. But in South Africa, and I was chatting to, um, I was chatting to Todd and I was chatting to Bruce from Zimbabwe. You have this kind of issue, I think, in the African church dynamic, and by African I mean the rest of Africa, where a little bit of money may go a really long way. But sometimes our eyes are just very closed to both the need and the opportunities in those kind of areas. I know, or I'm guessing this is part of the type of conversation you had with Natasha and the, the township work, where, where sometimes we can just, we, we can have our eyes closed to anything that isn't really in our face. And then if someone comes begging or asking for money, we, we send to those causes, but we're not really involved in the work of Christ at a grassroots level in the lives of other individuals, as you were talking about. So I, I would just challenge you, most of you are pastors are involved in ministry in, in some capacity, that I think with, with business people, which is my background, that part of, part of, I think what the Lord calls us to is to be properly discipled, to love God with heart and mind, with a discerning love. And then those people ought to be challenged to get involved in worthwhile causes for Christ. And that may be something like Truth Walk. It may be directly funding, let's say, seminary education or training. But I think we need to sometimes be more purposeful about saying what types of works really honor um, the name of Jesus and the biblical patterns of ministry in an authentic way and, and really look like the Macedonians to search out some of those works and to get behind those works instead of just almost 
being lazy and not, not screening opportunities or, or just giving to the first thing that comes along and then neglecting really good work so that there ends up being that inequality that we're trying to do. And last thought, maybe you, you can give a few comments, but I, I think this is something where maybe a lot more thought also needs to be given in the American church. It probably needs to be given in largely white middle, upper middle class churches as well. But there is so much by way of resources in some of these countries. And sometimes systemically there are problems whereby you have, for example, pastors who, or students who train, let's say, in the U.S., or South Africans who go and study in the U.S., and then so many people remain in the U.S. rather than going out into parts of the world that really need that service. And I think there needs to be maybe some more reflection of saying, how do we, how do we match funding sources with where the real need is? Because otherwise you, you end up with a situation where people may preach really loudly and really compellingly that Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. But the implication is, okay, I'll do that as long as it's in the US, you know, not in Africa or, or, or whatever the case may be. So I think sometimes we, we kid ourselves about where our commitment really is. And I'll circle back to that point of just saying, it, it's a discipleship issue, not a guilt trip that just says, we need to be following the Lord faithfully and then looking for opportunities to serve um, in a way that will glorify him and that will perhaps look, think about where we can be fruitful as opposed to where it's going to be easy. I would just say amen to that. So, and you kept looking at me and saying American, but I just want to remind you I'm a Canadian now. So... <laughs> I, I okay. repent inside okay. about the national. <laughs> All right, why don't we do this? Why don't we take a break, um, and we will come back and wrap up and go kind of see what's going on in Chapter 9. Uh, so, Michael, how long is our break here? Uh, is this a five-minute break or a uh, ten-minute break? A, a longer break? It, it's a longer break. Let's, let's have like 20 minutes, but like really 20 Okay, like really 20 minutes, so something around 18 after or so. We'll come back, and we'll finish up. Thank you.